Our Bible reading this morning is from John chapter 4, beginning at verse 46. Once more, Jesus visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. How many people are here are, uh, are Reading Originals, born and bred in Reading? So there's actually there's, there's a few of us around. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those as well. So, um, but, uh, so I spent my first 18 years in and around Reading. I was actually born uh, just a mile away across the other side of Prospect Park. But um, uh, when I left Reading to go and, uh, and, and train, um, I spent about 10 years of my life running up and down the, uh, the M4, so I got to know the M4 really, really well, stopping off at, at different towns. Um, one little detour that I took uh, career-wise was for a year up in High Wycombe, where I spent uh, six months doing paediatrics, children's medicine, and uh, another six months doing obstetrics. And during that entire year, for various reasons, it was my job, or one of my jobs, um, to, to check... Um, all of the baby's hips. So I was supposed to do that um, before the children and the babies left hospital. Now, I expect that some of you probably remember having your own baby's hips checked. Yes. A few nods, yeah. Well, it, uh, it isn't always a very popular thing to do um, because the babies usually get upset and that entire year... I can only think of probably two or three occasions when the babies didn't cry. And when they cry, they, uh, they often lose control of their bladders. Now, if you're checking babies' hips, you're, you've actually got hold of, of one side of their, sort of their hip, and then you're actually manipulating the leg with the other. So both of your hands are occupied. So the little boys, in particular, when they get upset, they can spray a long way, and I got more than one eyeful, although I got to be a pretty dab hand at lifting the nappy over the top, but it didn't save me. Anyway, I, I left that and uh, came back to Reading to, to do a, a year as a, as a trainee down the road. Um, and, uh, and, but when I was probably about two or three weeks into the GP trainee job, um, a lady accosted me outside Helus. If you're a Reading original, you'll probably still call it Helus rather than John Lewis. 
So she just came up off the street and she said, hello, she said. I said, hello. And I was thinking, and she said, you're a doctor, aren't you? And I said, uh, yes. So casting my mind back three weeks and thinking, I don't recognise this face. And she said, uh, said, yes, you were up at High Wycombe, weren't you? And I said, yes, that's right. I'm afraid you've got the advantage on me, though. And she said, yes, you, you checked my baby's hips. So I said, oh, okay, uh, yes, um, I, guess, uh, I guess so. But um, she said, yeah, I remember you, she said. And her face cracked into a broadest of smiles. So she said, you're the one my baby peed on. <laughs> And so, to this day, I guess I'm known as the one that, uh, that this lady's baby peed on. Anyway, so coming home isn't always uh, what it's cracked up to be, which takes us to the story. Because Jesus um, has spent a little time away. So it's very early in Jesus' ministry, and he's come back up north. If you remember, of course, the, the Nazareth, Galilee region is, is up in the north of Israel. I did bring a slide, but unfortunately it's, um, it's not here, so you're going to have to use your imaginations. So Jesus has been down south, and he's, like every good Jewish man, he's um, gone on pilgrimage down to Jerusalem for one of the main feasts. So they were supposed to go down south to Jerusalem, to the temple, three times a year during the the Feast of Passover, that's equivalent to our Easter, Feast of Weeks, that's equivalent to our Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles, for which we don't have a Christian equivalent, but may have been the time when Jesus was born, but that's another story. So he's now back up north, and up to this point, he hasn't done any miracles at all, except for one in Cana, which is where he's now at. But that first miracle, of course, was the water into wine miracle, and Jesus did that entirely under the radar. The only person, as far as we know, who knew what had happened was his mother. So, but Jesus nevertheless... He's already under scrutiny. And the reason for that, of course, is that when he's been down south, he's actually started doing things in the temple. And he's done a few miracles, and it's been noted. He's been watched. So when he gets back up north, this chap with a northern accent is spotted by his other fellow northerners, and they are ready to witness a miracle. So word has got around. But Jesus is um, found by a chap who's identified, not by name, but just as a royal official. We don't know where he's turned up from, but it's quite likely that he's come from about 10 or 12 miles away from a town called Tiberias. Because, um, you know, the Queen has Sandringham and Balmoral and uh, uh, Noah's sort of second homes to Windsor Castle. Well... Herod Antipas had his own little holiday home as well, and that was in Tiberias. So he'd built this over his palace, over a spa area, probably within the last decade or so, the history books um, tell us. So the chap has probably come from there, but nevertheless, it seems that his family is further around the shoreline in Capernaum, and they're fair old distances. So Cana is about, probably about 10 or 12 miles west 
from Tiberias and quite a bit further from Capernaum. And this chap has come and found him because his son is dying, this poor man. And presumably, because he's got royal connections, he already knows all the royal physicians. This is a man who's well up. He's got his own servants. So the physicians have already been consulted. You can be pretty sure of that. And nothing has happened. His son is getting worse. So this guy, he's got to the point where he'll do anything. He's desperate. So he goes and he finds Jesus and says, please, will you heal my son? And Jesus apparently swims to deal with him with, sort of initially with quite short shrift and says, well, you, just, you lot just want to see a miracle. Um, although actually you is plural. He's mainly not directing it to this man. He's mainly directing it to the others who are there um, just sort of hanging around and, and hoping to see something spectacular. And Jesus says, you can go. It's all right. Your son will be okay. And the man doesn't question it. He doesn't say, no, no, you've got to come with me. He just leaves. And that happened when Jesus, when probably around lunchtime, that's what the story says, the seventh hour or so, it was around lunchtime. And Jesus deals with this. And he goes home, and it's more than a day's travel, so he doesn't arrive back until the following day. But his servants meet him halfway and say, it's okay, your son's better. And, uh, and he says, well, when did that happen? And, of course, it's the exact time that Jesus spoke. So looking this up in the concordance, this whole story takes three lines. Um, and, but we can actually learn a fair bit from it, I think. So here's learning point number one. Jesus is up for interruptions. He doesn't really mind being interrupted. He will meet us all at our point of need. He's never too busy. He's always got time. And you are not going to be a nuisance. So that's one thing to remember. That's nice to know, isn't it? Learning point number two is that Jesus is not interested in being a celebrity entertainer. Uh, most of the miracles that Jesus did were done in the tiny, private audience. See, we've got lots of modern-day magicians, and they had a few in their day as well. But Jesus is different. He's not interested in the limelight. He's interested in our response of faith. So and that's what he's primarily looking for. Have you ever wondered why it is that Jesus you know, these days just doesn't go into a hospital, you know, with some of his followers and just empty the place or do some spectacular miracle on primetime TV live. Occasionally people come in and God does heal people in hospital, I, I agree. But he doesn't usually empty hospitals in my experience. Sorry? <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Anyway, so, but it's not his style to, to empty or places like that or do things which hit the cameras. He's much more interested in doing things on an, on an individual level. And the miracles that he does are called 
signs often in the scripture. They are in this passage, certainly in the NIV. And signs are signposts. They point somewhere. And where they're pointing, of course, is to Jesus' identity. They're God's broad hints that Jesus is not your average person. He is and has a claim to be Lord on our lives. So he is the Messiah. And once we realize that Jesus has that claim, then the only right response we can make is to drop on both knees and acknowledge it. Jesus isn't interested in admirers. He's interested in mentoring disciples. Here's a third learning point. God doesn't have favourites. He isn't interested in how talented we are, how important we are or think we are, how popular we are, how well-connected we are, how wealthy we are, how well-educated we are, how brainy, how athletic, whether we're part of the in-crowd or whether we're not. It doesn't make any difference to him. It doesn't make any difference to him as to whether you've got bad breath, bat ears, bug teeth, shocking acne, and known like Concord. Compare Jairus. Jesus goes with Jairus, but the royal official, he doesn't bother going with. Maybe it's a distance thing, but we don't even know the royal official's name. We know Jairus' name. So Jesus isn't interested in how well-connected we are isn't interested in our ability at all. In fact, scripture quite clearly points out that it gets better than that because God actually favours the poor and the insignificant. Did you know that? Has anybody ever felt poor and insignificant or a bit helpless? Well, you qualify. Anyone who does qualifies because God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. I'm borrowing a phrase from someone else there, but it's completely the wrong way up. It's almost as if, you know, things that, that we value, God doesn't. It's, somebody's compared it to God going into a shop and swapping all the price labels in the night. And all the things that we think of as, as valuable and precious, he doesn't really care about. And the things that we don't, generally don't value, God does value. So if you're feeling that you don't have a lot to give, then that's okay, you qualify. The only people that God actually really resists, really doesn't like, are people who are pretentious. God actually resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But the good news is that even if we do have some of these abilities, and I don't see anybody who's got buck teeth and bad breath here and all the rest of that jazz... Even if we do have a few natural assets, that's not going to stop God from using us, provided we approach God on our knees and we don't think too highly of ourselves. God won't mark us down for that. And here's our fourth and last learning point. Faith is defined by as much by what we choose to do as what we choose to believe. Now, it's important that we do believe, otherwise we've got no basis for doing anything. But faith has to be translated into action. I'll tell you a brief story. Um, the, a few years ago, um, Enquire, the organisation that I run, was in trouble. Um, we were, we'd been raided. 
the lady who was our advice worker um, would, was really unwell and uh, wasn't able to continue. She was our one advice worker. Um, our computers would have been taken. In fact, we were, take, we were raided and then re-raided a fortnight later, and the replacement computer was taken as well. There was a spate of it around Southcote at the time. And we wondered whether we could continue. And a number of people came up to me and said, David, look, I mean, you've got to see the writing on the wall here. You know, it's time to close up. Um, you can't carry on. Oh, and I forgot, we were down to our last thousand pounds as well. So we, was, we were sort of pretty much on our uppers. And I and my um, fellow uh, conspirators prayed. And we didn't feel that it was right to close it. We'd, God just wouldn't quite let us. It didn't make great sense but that was what God seemed to be saying. So we had to stop the service for about two or three months, advertise, and see who, um, who came up, who came, and who would rise to the challenge. And uh, it would be too long a story to go into. But we ended up with two amazing people who completely turned round Enquire, uh, that was in 2006, so it's now eight years later, and, and it's upright, and the service has expanded. But faith doesn't always make sense, but it is based on choice. And I'll tell you one other thing. Do you know how to spell faith? It's got four letters, not five. How do you spell it? That's, the, that's one version. I've got another one for you. It's spelt R-I-S-K. I'm a Robin Gipsy, and I spell But it's also, uh, I'm, I'm making it, yeah, I know it is, I know, you're quite right, but we're going to spell it for the sake of this morning, we're spelling it R-I-S-K. Yep, it is. So what are we supposed to do with any of this? Well, I'm going to suggest three practical applications. Firstly, whether we've done it before or not, let's humbly, consciously humble ourselves before Jesus and acknowledge his lordship. Now, we all have areas of our lives that, are, that we don't really have very good insight into where Jesus is not completely lord. But we really must not have areas that we know about where God is not completely Lord. So we need to act on that. If, that's, if we're to follow him properly, we can't say that any area of our lives is closed off to him. So there's an old saying that if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. So you might like to cement that commitment by praying with somebody, maybe the prayer ministry team, maybe Carol, maybe Pads, maybe Kirsty, or a Christian friend you trust. But don't leave it at that. Secondly, can I suggest that we should never ever say that we are too small or too insignificant for God to use? 
Scripture is absolutely shot through with stories of Moses and Gideon and Jeremiah who didn't think they were anything, but God picked them up and used them. And the great news is that it's an advantage as far as God's concerned. It doesn't actually matter at all. So our weakness and inability is the fertile ground that God uses to plant remarkable things. And God is much more interested in our availability than our ability. So he may use our ability, but what's key is our availability. And the last thing is that if uh, God is whispering to any of us, John, Daphne, start something. I want you to start this ministry for me. Or I want you to go and pray with so-and-so. They need your prayers. Don't, don't hold back. Because if God is whispering that, act on it. Give it a go. God will use it because he's very much uh, that kind of God. He's a God who honours faith.